Am I not mistaken? Wasn't that the hymn we sang at both your weddings, both of your two weddings? I think it was. The text which I've chosen for our uh, sermon today on this occasion of Jackson's baptism is from Genesis chapter 26. So if you have your own Bibles, I would invite you to uh, turn there with me. You can find it on page 20 of the Blue Bibles uh, if you'd like to, uh, or the passages printed in the uh, bulletin. So if you'd like to just follow along in the bulletin, you are welcome uh, to do that uh, as well. And I'll refer to a couple of other uh, texts in the bulletin throughout the sermon. Uh, the text is perhaps somewhat of an unusual one, but I hope that in the course of the sermon uh, will bring clarity to show the relevancy of uh, this word to us today. Uh, by way of just a little bit of introduction, the main character in uh, this passage is Isaac. Isaac, the promised son of Abraham. And the theme of this passage that I'm reading for us is covenant. Isaac is the covenant heir of the covenant promises that were made to Abraham. And in the first few verses of the section that I'm reading, we'll see God rehearsing the covenant promises that he has already given to Isaac, and then we'll see Isaac responding to those covenant promises as God reminds him of them, tells them to him once again. And then in the second portion of the passage, we'll see a covenant between Isaac and Abimelech. Okay, Abimelech is a regional king, uh, and over the years there had been tension. There had been tension that existed between, in the first place, Abraham and Abimelech, and now between Isaac and Abimelech as well. So Abimelech, as we will read and as we'll see, is coming to Isaac with a request to make a covenant. The covenant is an attempt to resolve the tension that has arisen between them to bring peace to reconcile uh, Isaac and Abimelech. Our title then today is Keeping Covenant. Hear this portion of the Word of God beginning at verse 23. From there he, that is Isaac, from there he went up to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and I will bless you, and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there, and called upon the name of the Lord, and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me, and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we've not touched you and have done nothing to you but good, and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. 
That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, we have found water. And he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give it to us for our instruction, our edification, our building up in the faith. And we pray that you would do exactly that today. Lord, we thank you for the covenant, for the promises that were given to Isaac and that are ours as well as the children of Abraham. Help us then to hear today in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the uh, best days of my life, uh, there, there are good days in life, but one of the best days of my life, if not the best day of my life, was September 12, 1987. On September 12, 1987, I said these words, I, Eric, take you, Lauren, to be my wedded wife, and I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your faithful, your, sorry, your loving and faithful husband. And then, of course, heard Lauren say the same words back to me in her turn. Marriage is a covenant. And in that covenant of marriage, two people are brought together and promises are made and vows are taken and symbols of the covenant are exchanged. The covenant and the vows and the promises and the symbols are designed to secure the marriage, to secure the loyalty that exists within the marriage and the intimacy that exists within the marriage. Now, we don't use the word covenant often in common everyday speech. It's not something that you just hear uh, often out on the streets. But this image, the image of a marriage, I hope, helps us to understand the ancient word and the ancient idea. Covenant brings together. Covenant is a bond. It's formal and it's binding and it is serious and it is meant to be kept by the parties who enter into this covenant unto their mutual joy and delight. God relates to his people by means of covenant. He doesn't just casually relate to us, but instead formally and through this structure called the covenant, he relates to us as his people. God covenants with his people. Now, that might sound, if you're not familiar with it, a bit odd to us, but at least we hear it frequently when we partake of the Lord's Supper together and when you hear the words that Jesus spoke saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. That new covenant language is what we're talking about today. Baptism is the sign and the seal of that covenant, of the covenant of grace. Now, our primary concern today is with the covenant that God has made with us, with his people through his son. However, this human covenant that is in this passage, this covenant between Abimelech and Isaac, uh, helps us to kind of unpack and understand the idea of God's covenant with us. And that's why I thought the passage would be valuable to us. So today, here's what we're going to do. We're going to consider uh, making a covenant, 
confirming a covenant and keeping a covenant. Okay? Making, confirming, and keeping. I think we can say, and it might be helpful for us to put it this way, then that when you are making a covenant, the making of a covenant arises out of a desire and a need. Okay? A desire and a need. You can think of the need as a gap, and the desire is to cross that gap, to find some way to bridge that gap. So in our text today, the need in the passage arises because Isaac has been visibly blessed by God. Over the years, Isaac has grown in wealth, he's grown in significance, and presumably along with that, he's grown in influence and power in the region. And while he hadn't grown in that, he wasn't much of a threat to Abimelech, but now he becomes something of a threat, and this causes tension. It causes tension that arises between the servants of Isaac and the servants of Abimelech. The desire that is there, that the need is this problem, this tension that exists. The desire is for peace and safety. And that leads to this request to make a covenant. The promises that are made in the context of that covenant are kind of unpacked for us here as we look at this one in verse 29. In verse 29, the idea that Abimelech is proposing, that you will do us no harm. And then by implication and by example, just as we've not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. No harm. Let's make sure that the only thing that we do to one another is something that is good to one another so that between us there can be peace. Those are the promises. Now, when God makes a covenant with us, that's that earthly one that allows us to see it. When God makes covenant with us, the need exists in the first place just because the difference between God as the creator and we as the creature is, is such a vast diff distance between them. There's such a, a gap, a gulf between them that God looks for a way that there can be communion, there can be fellowship between himself and the creature, and he's pleased to do that. He's pleased to bring his promise, his relationship, his blessing to us by means of covenant. That's his, that's his promise unto us, is to extend it for that reason. But it doesn't even stay like that. When we rebelled against that covenant, when we went our own way, when we didn't keep the stipulations of that covenant, well, the gap widens, or if you will, the, the, the gulf increases exponentially when we rebel against God, and a new kind of bridge is needed. Namely, for God to meet with us as a holy God with a sinful people, you need a bridge of grace. A promise to bring to people blessing has a need that precedes it. You can't bless a people in their sin without first creating a way that you can make peace, that you can reconcile, that you can bring together two parties that are currently not at peace with one another, God and man. And so in, in grace, God brings forth this covenant. And the way that he brings forth this covenant without trying to go through all of the scriptures on it is he brings it forth through the promise of an offspring. 
And, and when we hear the word offspring, it, it, there's two senses to it. The promise of an offspring is one, the promise of one particular offspring, and a promise that then extends to many offspring. So in one sense, God says, I'm going to resolve this. I'm going to bring a covenant of grace through one unto many. And so, if you're familiar with the biblical story, Abraham is promised a son. And at the same time, Abraham is promised offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky. Right? So, so there's one that's a particular promise, and that turns out to be Isaac, right? The, the Isaac of our text. And then there are more that come from, that, from them. And Isaac receives basically his own version of this same promise uh, as well, where in verse 24, God says, I'm the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I'm with you, and I will bless you, and I will multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So the promise goes on. This covenant will continue. You will have many offspring because of the covenant promises that I made to Abraham, your father. Now the promise is ultimately fulfilled in Christ, who we saw last week. How does the New Testament start off? The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So he is the one offspring that is to come from this. The, the one that we're pointing to, the one true son of Abraham. And then, of course, it's fulfilled in us. When we who in Christ are Abraham's offspring, we are heirs according to the promise. That too, then, is the fulfillment of the many side of this. As it's written in Galatians 4.28, and this, this is nice because it references Isaac in particular, frankly tying us to this promise that's right in our text. It says, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. So a New Testament church is being addressed that existed 2,000 years after these promises were made to Abraham. And, and he says, this is about you. We're not just talking about Abraham from 2,000 years ago. It's the way you should identify yourselves. You, like Isaac, are children of the promise. So the covenant, the covenant, God's gracious covenant, is made at his initiative, and it is fulfilled by God himself. Now what I consider is the confirming of a covenant. That's how you make a covenant. How do you confirm a covenant? Now all of us recognize that there are ways to intensify the words that we speak, the promises, the intentions that we have in our lives. So I can say to you that I am going to do this or that. And it would be a wonderful thing if every time I said I'm going to do this or that, that I actually fulfilled that, that I actually did the thing that I said I was going to do. But all of us know from experience that it doesn't always work uh, exactly like that. And so it's nice when there's a little bit more verbal assurance attached to that. So, for example, it sounds like this. I promise I will do that. Okay? I will do that. No, I promise I will do that. I don't just promise. No, no, no. I swear I will do that. I swear, and you should not do this, but I swear to God that I should do that, that I will do that. Or I swear on my mother's grave that I will do this thing. All of these are just ways of intensifying what we're saying. 
We know we don't live in an ideal world. We know that there are going to come things that threaten the commitments that we have made, that threaten the attachments that exist in this world. And so when the seam is there, at the very place of the seam where the commitment is being made, you need to just not single stitch that. You need to double stitch that or triple stitch that. That's a sewing analogy, Michaela. I just wanted to know. I threw that in there just for you. Anyway, you need to strengthen that seam in that particular spot. A covenant itself is a way of confirming a promise. That's, that's what a covenant is all about, of intensifying a commitment or an intention. But within covenant, within covenant, there's another way, and I've already alluded to it in what I've said. It's by taking an oath or by taking a vow, by swearing. Vows are designed to hold us in place when we are tempted to veer off. That's why you have them within the context of a marriage covenant. That's why the vows are there. That's why uh, politicians take an oath of office. That's why you make vows when you come into membership in the church. That's why you make vows when you serve as an officer of the church or in the military. That's why you take them, because we know things are going to get difficult. Things are going to threaten to pull us apart. And we see this in our text as well. So in, again, in the example between Isaac and Abimelech, verse 30, so he made them a feast and they ate and drank. We'll come back to that in just a moment. In the morning, they rose early and they exchanged oaths. Now, we don't have a, a record of exactly what those oaths were, but we know in substance what they were, right? They're the same things that Abimelech was looking for when he came to Isaac. He's looking for uh, peace. He's looking for no harm to be done to one another and only good to be done to one another. So they take oaths to that effect. And we understand exactly what's going on here. They're just confirming the things that they have said. They're intensifying the commitment of the promise. Now, we get why we would do that as humans, right? Because we break our word. So that's why you do things like that. What I find absolutely extraordinary is that God does the same thing. Now, Rex read earlier for us the passage from Hebrews chapter 6. And even I knowing what that passage was going to be, having selected that passage, having read through that passage, even I, when I heard it read, thought, whoa, there was a lot in there. I'm not sure I caught everything that was said in there. Listen to it again now in context of what I've just explained and listen to what is being said in Hebrews chapter 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Okay, so that's the promise. God's got the promise. I will bless you. I will multiply you. No, no, no. Surely. Surely I will do this. And thus Abraham, having waited patiently, obtained the promise. Isaac, the one we're reading about right now. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. Why are you doing an oath? Confirmation. For insurance on exactly the thing that has been said. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we 
who have fled to refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. And what I want you to catch there at the end is that we've switched. We've been talking, or in the, in, in the passage I read, you're talking about Abraham, and you're talking about Isaac, and you're talking about God, and when you get right to the end, it says it's not just about them, it's about us. So that we might have hope. We are the ones for whom these things are written as well. God, of course, doesn't need any confirmation. God doesn't need any confirmation that he'll do what he said he would do, but we need it. And so in grace, in his voluntary kind of bringing himself down to our level, God vows covenant fidelity. He swears a fealty oath to his own promise. And that fosters our ability to hold fast to hope. But there's still one more thing. There's still one more thing in a covenant that is done to confirm it. And that is a sign. A sign is given. A seal of the covenant. So, just to to work through the order again, you've got a word that is spoken, and then you've got the promise, and then you've got the covenant, and then you've got the oath, and now you have a sign added to all of that. In marriage, we know what that is, right? All of us are familiar. What's the sign? Do you have a sign? Do Do you have a token? You have something that is going to pledge your fealty, that's going to show us that fealty. Yep, here's the ring. We're going to exchange these rings as a sign of this covenant. For Isaac and Abimelech, it's the feast. The the feast that they share together is the sign itself. Uh, at, At this time, it was very common to have a meal that would be a meal in which the covenant was ratified, in which it was sealed together as you ate of the same things together. Uh, This is not only the case here, but think, for example, when uh, Moses and the elders of Israel go up the mountain, they eat in the presence of God, and then, of course, the great sign and seal that is given to the Old Testament church is the Passover meal. So the meal here is the sign. Of course, if we go back, uh, the sign for Noah is the rainbow. And for Abraham and his offspring, the sign is circumcision. Verse 9 of chapter 17. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Keep my covenant. And circumcision is the sign of it. Circumcision was then a sacrament. Passover was a sacrament. Sacraments are covenantal signs and seals. They are a way of visibly and physically manifesting the grace of the covenant unto the people who are receiving it. They are given for the purpose of confirmation. That's why they're given They're given to confirm for us, in a way that is tangible, what has been said. In the New New Covenant, New Testament, baptism replaces the bloody sign of circumcision as the sign of membership in the covenant community. And Passover is fulfilled in the Lord's Supper as the sign of covenant participation. So by one sign, you're considered a member of the community. By the other sign, the meal, you're participating in the life of the community. So we've got making a covenant, and we've got confirming a covenant, and we conclude then with keeping a covenant. Uh, 
I trust that it is somewhat self-evident that a covenant is made to be kept, right? Or at least it has the intention of being kept as a covenant. So our natural impulse, as if, if you have any inclination towards the Lord, any inclination towards faith, then our natural impulse when we hear God extending a covenant towards us is to say in response, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be faithful or we will be obedient to all of the words that have been spoken. Now, I'm, I'm quoting there. That's what Israel said in response to Moses going up the, the, the mountain, receiving the words from God, bringing them back down to Israel, speaking them to the people, saying, this is the covenant, and the people say that. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's repeated at the end of the book of Joshua, when Joshua renews the covenant with the people. They essentially say the same thing. Now, that's a good impulse Right? It's a good impulse to hear from God to say, God says, keep my covenant. Here's what I want you to do. For example, we'll just say the Ten Commandments. Here's the Ten Commandments. I want you to keep those. It's a good impulse to say, yay, amen, we got it. The problem is we don't have it. <laughs> the problem is we're not good at keeping God's covenant. And, and so you look at the entire story of the Bible, the story of the Old Testament, and we see that in terms of our obedience to the covenant, we are in fact more often covenant breakers than we are covenant keepers. And so, so that would hang over us as an identity, but God is aware of that. God is aware of who we are and our tendency to rebel against him and his word. So he ends up being the one who must ultimately keep the covenant by how bringing forth the promised offspring he keeps the covenant that he made himself faithfully on his part and he ends up keeping the covenant that was made with us faithfully on our part through one of our errors through one of our offspring someone has to come to be the covenantal head of a community of faith and he has to be the one who comes and obeys faithfully all of the words of his father. In terms then of our covenant keeping, we cannot start with our obedience. That's not what it means when we say keep the covenant. Start with your obedience. Say that you'll do everything that God has, has commanded. You can't start there. That's a dead end. That's what scripture says. It's a dead end. We have to start where, in fact, Abraham started. And this, the scripture says, as clearly and as powerfully as it says anything. In Genesis chapter 15, God repeats covenant promises to Abraham. He says to him, look at the stars. If you're able to number them, that's how your descendants are going to be. And we read this in 15.6. And he, that is Abraham, believed the Lord, and he, God, counted it to him as righteousness. How did Abraham respond to the promises of God? He responded to the promises of God by belief. By belief. And that was the key. That was the key. And, and it's pulled then into the New Testament as well. All right, Nate and Janae, when I read you 
the questions, the vows that you took today. When I read those to you, I didn't start off with number three. I started off with one and two. And number one starts off with essentially this. Do you recognize the need? Do you see the need? Do you see the need for Jackson's salvation as you do for your own? That there has to be a work from outside of us that is done. And then it said, do you see, do you see the desire and the solution to that? Which is, do you, do you claim the need for Jackson to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for his salvation as you do for your own? Those two questions have to be the first ones that are out there. It's, it's, not, it's not just a question of, gee, that's, that's a nice way to, to do the order. Instead, that order is intentional. It has to be that order. I have to ask the questions. I'm saying I ask the questions. It's the church. I didn't create the questions. The church does it in that order to rehearse the covenant so that you understand what's going on in the covenant and how you are to keep this covenant. It's not accidental. What are the three things you have to know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? One, how great my sin and misery are. Two, how I am set free from all of my sin and misery. That's one, two. That's the same questions that were asked of the two of you for that order, for that reason. Once you believe, once you recognize those things, then you can vow. Then you can put stitches in your commitment to walk in the Lord and to lead Jay to walk in the Lord. And we vowed with you to support that. And once you vow, once you vow, then you receive the sign. You receive the sign as the gift, as the promise from God, as strength to keep that vow. Abraham was told to keep the covenant starting with circumcision, with the sign. What remains then for you, for us, is the living out, or if you will, the living into the commitments of the covenant. For you as parents and for Jackson, to come to believe as well. That's what remains to be lived out. God is pleased to work in and through families. And families covenanted together as his church. This, uh, this service today began with words from Psalm 116. Note the order of them. The very first thing we said, I love the Lord. I love the Lord. Now, we could go to other scriptures. We love because he first loved us. But the point is, at first it says, I love the Lord. And then what did you say as a congregation? As a congregation, you picked up the refrain of this and said, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. You can't get the order otherwise. If you start with the vows, you're dead. You start with the love. And then you go to the vows. Okay? And then the vows become something that is joyful, something that is life-giving, instead of being something that is otherwise burdensome and simply a place where you are doomed to failure. Nate, I think I've been with you for every vow that you've ever taken. I didn't administer all of them. I didn't administer the marriage vows. Janae's dad administered those. But from your baptism vow, 28 years ago, I did that one, Lauren and I, Mom and I did that one on your behalf. To these today, we've been with you for all the vows uh, that you have taken. Uh, 
one of our favorite movies in, uh, in the kids, with the kids when they were little uh, is Robin Hood's uh, uh, The Adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn, okay, one of the oldest versions of Robin Hood. And at the end of that uh, movie, the last lines of it, as I recall it at least, are, uh, this is the scene, they've defeated uh, Prince John and all the characters. Richard has been restored to his place. The battle has finished and a celebration is going on after the battle. Uh, and Richard is reinstalled as the king of England and Robin swears his fealty to Richard, the king. Richard restores all of his lands and his titles unto him and he says this my first command to you is to take in marriage the hand of the lady Miriam what do you say to that Robin of Loxley and Robin responds may I obey all your commands with equal pleasure sire that's that's the difference when when the relationship is established those commands take on a whole different character they're the pleasure commands. That's the place. May, may these vows for you that you've taken today be the pleasure commands from the one who is your Lord, your King, your Sire. How sweet would it be if 12 years from now, Jackson stands right there and takes his own vows to profess his faith in the Lord. People of God, the Lord has kept, he keeps, and he will keep his covenant. The Lord is your keeper. In that good news and only in that good news, enjoy, keep the covenant. Keep the covenant, enjoy. Lord, thank you for the mercy that you have shown to us. Jesus, thank you for your obedience as the perfect son. And now, the mediator of a new covenant, of a covenant of grace unto us, your people. We rejoice in the fulfillment of your promises that took place long ago in your son Jesus and continue even now to this day. Thank you. And Lord, where there are loved ones who have walked away, draw them back. Draw them back to you, Lord. Our heart aches. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me.